Okay, today I'm at Brighton Racecourse on a glorious day with Matthew Batchelor. Matthew, thanks very much for agreeing to take some time out to talk to us here. Absolute pleasure. Um, I've been asking around about you, universally referred to as one of racing's good guys. That's, that's good to hear, yeah. <laughs> now, you, you recently retired from the saddle. How is retirement suiting you? I know it's early days. Yeah, it's, I think it's very, I mean, I probably should have retired years ago, but it's, it's one of those sports, and I, I presume football is the same, and it's very hard to let go. And I was riding abroad over in Jersey and getting a few rides, and that's why I, half the reason I kept my license really, because I was going over there every year and rode a few winners over there. So yeah, but then it got to a stage, it was I've recently, well not recently, in February I had a hip operation, and I sort of, I was accommodating it for probably the last two years and, and just carrying on and time was time was now I to sort of say, right, enough's enough, I had to, had to wave the white flag and I was offered a ride for a local train actually, Camilla Poulton. And it, it, it was a juvenile I'd been schooling and, and done a lot with and taught him to jump and he was really good and he was quite exciting because he, he, his half brother won at Cheltenham. I know that doesn't mean a lot, but there was a lot of potential there, and it came to ride. His first run was at Fontwell, and it was sort of, well, you can ride him, he's your ride. And I was like, I said, you know what, let let someone else ride on him. I've, the hip doesn't feel 100%, and he ran okay at Fontwell, and then and then he went and won at Sandown, and it was, I was, it, it didn't bother me, probably the wrong word to use, it didn't bother me as much as it should have done. But that's not because I'd lost all interest. The fire still burn, still burns now. But it was, I didn't want to do the horse an injustice. So I just thought, put someone else on it. I could sit on it, I've schooled it. I'd, I could easily sit there. But if when push came to shove and started getting down to ask the horse for an effort or really get down and get behind him, I think I might have, I wouldn't have been able to give it the full 100%. So. That's why I said, look, put someone else on it. And it, and it won at Sandown, and I was, I was just pleased to be involved in a horse. I'd taught it to jump, I'd schooled it, and I was pleased for Camilla and Eliza Poulton that it had gone and won. So it was, then I knew that was probably time to get myself sorted out first and foremost. And are you still sort of riding out and involved? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm about, well, I had the op in February, so I'm post-op. It gave they gave me three months to start exercising. I'm back in the gym now, and yeah, I could I could easily sit on a horse now, but I'm quite busy with my mate. I've got a sales job. My mate got a business partition glazing, so we're very busy during the week, and sometimes we work Saturdays as well. So it's just getting the time. But I have been asked to ride in the Legends race at Doncaster September the 17th, so I will have to get my leg over a horse sooner or later to get into resemblance of fitness. Yeah, it's fair to say that you've sort of been winding down a bit over the last few years. It, I mean, how tough is it for a jockey that's not getting four or five rides a day? Do you have to look for other work? Yeah, it's tough, and that's that's where I got a part-time sales job. I was quite luckily the connections in racing. I had an opportunity to get a sales job. I mean, these jobs would have been advertised, and professional people would have gone for these jobs, but just because of who I knew, they recommended that I'd probably be suitable or good at a sales job. And lucky enough, I, I did it. it. It sort of took off. It's in the veterinary world and 
especially on the equine side, people recognised you, which opened doors. So I'd done that for a few years, part-time, so which allowed me to continue riding out and I suppose sort of do the riding in a part-time basis, albeit not a great, because you couldn't do it full-time, but I said it was, it was just not having to let go straight away. I could, I had a job that helped me pay my bills and my wages, but I could still go to Jersey and get the odd ride over here. To sort of ease yourself out a bit. We'll talk about Jersey in a bit, but your, your career, hopefully, hopefully I got my facts right, you rode over 300 winners. Yeah, that was here and abroad. Yeah, I think over here was probably in the region over 150. And then lucky enough for me, racing took me all around the world. Really. I, went, I went over to America, been to France, Jersey, Sweden and Norway. I, had a, I stayed in Norway for a good sort of two and a half months and worked over there. So with the winners in Jersey, Norway, Sweden, America, it all added up to around over 300 winners, yeah. And memorable successes, King Harold at Cheltenham and Carruthers in the Hennessy. Yeah, very memorable, yeah. King Harold was, yeah, I mean, when you first start out as a jockey, to get a ride at Cheltenham Festival, to be involved in that, it's like that is the, the pinnacle of our sport, the Olympics, so to speak, at the end of the season. So to get rides at the festival when I first started, it was just to be there in that atmosphere was absolutely phenomenal. And then as you as you further your career and sometimes you realise you sort of Cheltenham can be not a nice place to be. That sounds silly, but if you're on a horse that's not really got you're just making up numbers and it's not probably there's probably horses that run there that are probably not really good enough to be there. So it can be a horrible place, like trying to get room in a race and trying to get space. And so then, like later in your career, you think, well, because there's loads of other meetings on that week. So you could probably go somewhere else and get some maybe two or three or four rides. So sometimes it's better off going there for four than going to Cheltenham for one. And then obviously King Harold came along and like he had a, he had a building up to the, the race at Cheltenham. He was, he was entered in two. He was entered in the, the what was called the Sun Alliance then, and he was on, entered in one of the new races, the Novice Handicap Chase, on the Thursday, and we didn't know who was going to get into that race. And last minute we got in, so we scratched from the Sun Alliance. But all his form leading up to that was good form. He had an engine. He was, he was a bit clumsy, early on in these stages, and I, and I nearly well I did I did lose the ride on him early. I I rode him his first time. I'd rode him over hurdles. Rode first time over fences at Newbury, and he fell. And then he went to Plumpton, and I think Andrew Tinkler rode him. Yeah, he did ride him. And he was going to win at Plumpton, and then he fell. I was either two out or at the last. So he had two F by his name. And he wasn't, he wasn't a bad jumper by any means. He was just a little bit clumsy. And he was sort of forget to do things, like get his landing gear out sometimes. He was well capable of jumping. So then, of course, his third run, he went up to Newcastle, and of course, his horse coming up from the south, two Fs by its name, all the northern jump jockeys up there, sort of, their agent said, do you want to ride this? And in no uncertain terms, they told him where to go. Like, said, the southern horse coming up here? Like, no thanks. So I got back on him by default, really, because no one else was stepping up to the plate to ride him. So I got back on him at Newcastle. He ran well, finished second. And after that, he went to Newbury and one on him. So then that was it then, I was I was keeping the ride. 
and so he went to Cheltenham and then there yeah, the rest was history so he made all the running and and it was it was bittersweet really because well not bittersweet but we nearly <laughs> again he had we'd done a lot of work with Yogi Breisner who does a lot with the Great British show jumping and teaches horses to jump and we'd done a lot of spent a lot of time with Yogi and he got he got him jumping and into a rhythm and told me how to relate what I wanted him to do and and that day at Cheltenham he was absolutely foot perfect absolutely awesome until the last where we was in front Richard Johnson was behind me on lap Dudel and it looked like it was going to be a ding dong battle and I jumped the last jumped the last fine just got in a bit close to it he jumped it and, and as he landed there he was his custom mistake he literally slipped and half tripped over and I, I thought I was gone I was hanging off the side lost my stirrup managed to stay on kicked the other stirrup out went up the went up the running like he won't mind me saying like Andrew Thornton <laughs> or John Wayne very similar and crossed the line in front he went away in the end he, he fell a bit more turn of toe and he won and by him doing that, I, I won a Leicester as well. I won Ride of the Year, so it was it was I won a race at the festival and won a and won Ride of the Year. So it was looking back, it was it was good that he made a mistake. That was good. I was going to say that it was a, a Leicester, um, and then you got another one in 2019. So there was a fair spread of you having really really good rides. That was on Noble Glance at Fontwell. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's again for me to someone like me, sort of wouldn't get many good ride so it was nice when a good horse came along and so to win the first Leicester ride of the year I mean you used to go to the Leicester Awards every year and see all the jockeys go up on the stage and get these prestigious Leicesters and so to get one of them and it was great it was I, I took my fi family that night and a few of my closest friends and it was a great evening just to go up there and they were very proud it was a proud moment for me and then yes it was well you're talking 16 17 odd years sorry yeah yeah felt that 15 odd years to get the other one and but again it was there was four runners in the day one non-runner was three runners and there was two apprentices in the race i was on noble glance and she wasn't the quickest she was probably it was probably a bit short for her and we started racing and i was off the bridle a long way out and the boys in front of me kicked down the home straight and I mean, they, a lot of them people said they kicked too early, but I've seen people kick down Fontwell Hill and on that sort of ground and still win. It was, I think it was just more of my horse. She just, her stamina kicked in and she, she never gave up. I was pushing her from the top of the hill all the way down. And again, I, I was, I wasn't having many rides that, that season. So I, I stopped, had a little breather to give my breath back, <laughs> turned into the straight and started riding again. And, she just kept picking up and picking up and yeah, I mean, any jockey would have won on it because you can, you can feel a horse if they're still trying for her and she was, so I just kept pushing and pushing. So yeah, again, she made me look good because I never stopped trying. She got up and won on the line. So that's it, it, it went mad. Then everyone said, oh, what a great ride, what a great ride. The boys, the other boys got a bit of sticks. They, they said they got racing too early, but I, I don't stand by that. But at the time I did say to them, I would have won on any of the three. <laughs> now you, there was 14 years between those two rides, so you're obviously a very good jockey for all that time. You got the, you know, they sort of bookmarked. Yeah. You know, now obviously there's a lot of jockeys 
and only a very, very few make the absolute top flight. I mean, do you think that there's an element of luck in who gets to be at the very top and maybe, you know, some, some people don't get spotted when they should do? I don't... I think there's a... I'm, I'm going to be very biased and I, I'm going to say that I think I rode in one of the greatest eras of all time. I mean, when I first started, you, like you had the likes of Dunwoody, you had Jamie Osborne, you had Graham Bradley, uh, Mark Richards, all, and up north you had like Graham Lees, Ross Garrity's, Aidan Smith, and it's, I just thought, I think it was very lucky, and there was a lot of, a lot of hell of good jockeys. And yes, I, what I like about McGoy when he's ever interviewed, he always sort of quotes that he was very lucky. And I think as a jockey, you you are very lucky because sometimes you you lose winners, you get on winners. And of course, listen, Richard Johnson and McCoy are, are phenomenal in their own right, and they're the top two leading jockeys of all time because of that reason. And it's there's a lot of I think there was a lot of strength in depth in jockeys and I, I'm not including me in that in any shape or form I, I I will openly admit I I started racing very young I didn't start learning to ride till I was 15 I literally camera can't see but I literally lived 600 yards down that way and I never knew Brighton had a race course I used to go to school on top of that hill over there come back play out on the street and Never knew what a jockey was until I was 15, 16. But when I started it, I, it's something I enjoyed doing and I wanted to do it. And I was nowhere, I was never a natural, very manufactured, but I was determined to, to do it and try and make, I never thought I would make a career, but I look back, I'm proud of what I've achieved and I made a living out of it for 20 odd years. So, I'm, yeah, when I look back, I'm, I'm very proud of what I've achieved. OK, and we're going to look back to that 15-year-old boy down the next part. Thank you. All right, Matty. I, it's interesting because my next, you've anticipated all my questions, which is good <laughs> and it's bad, but you've anticipated them. Um, so, you didn't start riding until you were 15. I didn't realise that you said that you lived just up the road there. That's right, yeah. You didn't know there was a race course here, so I'm assuming you didn't have a family that dragged you up here against your will at every opportunity. So when, how did you suddenly, 15, decide that you, how did you discover racing? So yeah, I slept, my mum my worked in my junior school. My dad was a builder, ground worker. And the only reason I sort of knew about racing, my granddad loved to bet. So when I went to see my nan and granddad, he'd always, he'd always have the racing on. But as I say, I, I never knew. I say I lived literally 600 yards that way and went to school over the top of the hill there and never knew there was a race course. And, but we did have family in Ireland and we always visited them over Christmas times in the summers. We went over there and spent a few weeks over there at a time. And this one weekend, we, we didn't know what to do. We'd, we'd been to the beach and we said, what else can we do? And a cousin of mine said, oh, I've got a mate. He's got some stables. He, we can go out horse riding. So we all said, yeah, yeah, something different. None of us had ever sat on horses and so we, we got to this, the yard and sat on these horses and we went off trotting and anyway we started having a canter and I enjoyed it and then went off into this field I started cantering and just really enjoyed it and afterwards the, I think he, he said oh you're, you're quite small you could be a jockey you're like quite natural but I was 
I just think he was trying to get me to come back the next day and get me to pay for another session because I, I wasn't a natural. But, yeah, I, I seemed to enjoy it. And he said, oh, you could be a jockey or small and sort of what's that? And he sort of not in, went into too much detail, but said, like, you, you work in the yard, you can work in races. And it, it interested me. My ears pricked up. And at that stage, at 50, I mean, I don't what 15-year-old knows what they want to do in the future. It's, it's a very early age to, excuse me, to know where your future lies. I came back here, I was dating a girl at the time and her dad, he had a connection with the Gary Moore, well, the Charlie Moore yard at that time. He knew someone who worked up at Charlie's and I was telling him what had happened. And he said, look, if you if you want a job in a racing yard, there's literally one at the top of Wilson's Avenue. I can make the contact and get you a Saturday and Sunday job. So that's where it all started really. And went up there with Charlie, Saturdays and Sundays, just learning to muck out and clean out the horses and was doing that for weekends and weekends on end, every weekend. And lucky enough for me that the kids were very young at that stage. Joss wasn't born, you had Ryan who was the oldest, Jamie and Hayley. And and Gary had been at Epsom, he'd come back down and they just helped me. We had a pony in the yard. So I learnt to ride on the pony called Clute. And just sort of kept having lessons with girls in the yard and some men in the yard are just helping me out. And if, if they sat in this front of the camera now, I'd, I know I know one of my mates who was teaching me to ride, he was sort of, he was like, if I ever thought you would achieve what you achieved now back then, he said I would have laughed. He said every time my dad asked him, how's Matt getting on? And he'd go, oh yeah, yeah, he's doing really well, doing really well. And he just looked at himself, I, I don't have the art to tell him. He said, I don't think he's that good. But I, I persevered and then started riding out the quiet racehorses. And I, me I remember the first name of the, Good old quiet horse, his name was John's Wager he was, and he was, oh, he was an absolute saint, and he, he looked after me for many a morning riding out. So yeah, just progressed from there then, and Gary took over, and then I'd, I'd been schooling, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go flat or jumping, and then I had my first ride, I think it was when I was 19, it must have been 1996, 97, first ride at Windsor on a horse called Run to Auburn over jumps, and I just, I'd, I was hit by the bug then, just absolutely loved it. And there were the guys when you, as a young jockey, going in there for the first time in the weighing room, like in a sanctum, right? How, how were they towards you? Yeah, they're, they're, they're very accommodating. And they, obviously, you, you'll get in and you're, you're put in a certain part of the, the weighing room. You, you had valets in them stage. And my first valet was, was John Buckingham, who very famously won the yeah. Grand National at 150 to 1. The name escapes Boy me. Boynhaven, that's it, the fence named after him now. And so, yeah, John took me under his wing and and that, they were good to me. And then the more and more rides you get, the the sort of the bigger lads at the time start talking to you and helping you and don't do this so much, try and do this. And I was very lucky, I was, I listened to them, I learnt from them and they helped you more. I think if you sort of stood there and never took it in or never absorb that information that they've given you. One, you'd be silly because the the font of knowledge in that wham room, if you can take any of that, it, it's invaluable. So to take that in and listen and ask questions as well. I, I was never shy in coming forward. I would always ask questions and what I could do. And John Franken was very good to me. I used to go around to John's house and we used to sit down together and he used to Help me elk and prove and say I've done a lot with Yogi Breisner and 
when I was at Henrietta Knights, yoga used to come down a lot. So yeah, I had a lot of people along the way help me. And, and first and foremost, I've always said it, I'd be internally grateful for, for Charlie and the Moore family for, they got me started on this journey. And without them, I mean, a lot of people ask me further on in my career, why didn't you go to a bigger yard, Paul Nichols, Henderson, and and the truth of the matter is, I mean, is that I I don't think I would have got on anywhere because because I started so late. The big yards would have had lads coming over and lasses coming over from Ireland who have been horses since they were four or five, so they would have had a distinct advantage over me, and I might not have been given the chances that Gary and Charlie did. So I. I'm, I'm adamant that I was in the best place for me because anywhere else I think I'd have been overlooked and yes there would have been better riders getting more rides than me so I, I'd, yeah I'd, I'd be internally grateful what they've done for my career. Now you mentioned John Buckingham, the obviously famous for the Grand National as well as being a valet. You didn't actually ride in the Grand National but when you Google you some good stories come up. You know, there's one about when you, you finish third in the top among Cossack Dancer he calls Murph in the weighing room at the pre-race pep talk. You remember <laughs> that? What that was? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So every, I say, yeah, that was that's the only not regret. That was that would have been the cherry on the cake for me to get a ride in the Grand National. I had a couple of near misses. I was docked up for one. He got scratched. Leighton Asper had a fall one day on the Friday. He went off to hospital, and he he looked by all. He looked like he'd broke his collarbone. He he walked out of hour or he's broke his collarbone. And I'd, I'd won on the horse a couple of times before. So I spoke to Nick Gifford. I said, look, Leighton's gone to the hospital. I said, looks like he's done his collarbone. I said, if, if he has, I said, is there any chance that I could ride the horse in the national? And he rang me back 10 minutes, said, I've spoke to, spoke to the owners. He said, yeah, it's fine. You can, you, got, you can ride him in the national. And I was, I was ecstatic. I was like, well, I've seen Leighton walk out, his shoulders down, I thought he's, he's done his collarbone. So I thought, I've got to ride in the National. And then, so we went out that night, as you always do, into town, into Liverpool, so you're telling, I'm telling every Tom, Dick and Harry, like, I'm, I'm walking around with my chest puff, yeah, riding in the National. And then, <laughs> walked into one bar, and there's this fella dancing on the dance floor, swinging his arms about, and I looked over, I said, it was late and asked. I went up to him, I said, all right, he said, yeah, I said, Oh, you ain't broke your collarbone? No, 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 it's fine. You know, I said, oh, right. I said, he went, why, why, why? I said, I said, oh, I was due to ride your horse in the National tomorrow. He went, oh, sorry. I said, well, don't apologise. You haven't broke your collarbone. But looking back now, he could have gave me that ride. He's won two, so he's won two after that. So, yeah, it was, so that was great. But in the Topham, so pre, pre sorry, Topham and National, all the stewards come in and say, right, you have to ride sensibly. Don't be silly. Like, it's, it, it's a statistic that if you make the run in and you go too fast, you'll never get round and all that. And on no certain terms, I shouted, well, that's me, absolutely. You can imagine the rest. I said, because I'm making the run. <laughs> and everyone started laughing. And me and Jamie, actually, run, we made the run in. Mine was a front runner anyway. So I had to make the run in and we'd... Obviously, the chair was the second fence. And we got to the water and Jamie said to me, oh, they're going quite quick, Batch. I said... I said, look, do you want me to go, take back a bit? Or so he went, and we, was, we were both in a good rhythm, turning around the back to like approach the on oncoming fences like with the first in the national. We went, nah, come on, Bats, let's just go for it. 
and we was just we just had a joy in it. We he went out the canal turn, and yeah, I managed and I managed I managed to finish third. But I did. So back in the day, we used to we used to have a laugh when we was at the races. When lads wasn't riding, they go down to the fences or the hurdles, and when we used to come over the fences, we would be singing a song or make something up or call someone out a name. So just a, just for a bit of sport, really. So on the Thursday of I was at Taunton and I'd seen Miles had been got into the Topham. So I said, that's it. I said, and the song of the time that we were singing over the fences was the police, Roxanne. So I said, right, lads, that's it. Tomorrow I'm in the Topham. I said, I am going to give everyone a shout over the chair. I said, that is it. So of course, the rumour mill started spreading. I'd had an interview on the telly actually with Norman Williamson. He said, oh, first time in the top of him. I said, yeah, really excited, Norman. He said, oh, and apparently you're gonna, you're gonna give people a shout at the, at the chair. I said, yeah, I've sort of dug myself a hole now, Norm. I've got to sort of stick to my, my commitment. So we've gone down to the start and we've, we've passed the chair and there's, I promise you now, there was about 30 lads and trainers and lasses down there waiting for me to come over to the chair and start singing this Roxanne. So I was like, right, I can't let anyone down, hate letting people down. So we jumped the first, I was in front, I was coming down to the chair and I think just by sheer luck, because I think in the whole of my career I never saw many strides, my eyes were shut most of it. I came down to the chair and I just saw this perfect stride and from about seven strides out I started the song Roxanne. <laughs> and they was just laughing and it, yeah, it went down. And, <laughs> and I got interviewed after with Claire Baldin and everyone brought it up that I'd shouted over the fence. So I read that you um, described the chair as a block of flats. Did you have a look at it before you? I did, yeah. I had to walk <laughs> round and it was, it was massive. But I thought, to be honest, I thought the ditch down the back, what had been the first ditch in the National, I thought that was bigger than the chair. Probably because it's a lot wider and it, and it, it probably does look a bit bigger, but that looks bigger than the chair. But yeah, to, and I remember going round there and he, he, he gave me a great, he was giving me a great ride. We just jumped Valentine's and we was going down to the next and I hadn't seen a stride and I left it to him and I was, we was very close to it. And I thought, well, this is, there's no way he's getting over this. So I just shut my eyes, waiting for the impact. And I opened it again and we're off towards the other fence. And I was just, I was patting him, I was like, hell, how the hell have you just got over this fence? But he, he had a lot of self-preservation. And I remember Tom O'Brien, we was, we was turning around with two more to jump. And Batch, he said to Batch, yeah, Batch, you've had a, some spin off him. He's been really good. And I, I went, Tom, will you shut up? I said, I've got two more fences to jump. I've got to get over <laughs> them too. But yeah, gladly, I, I got over them too. And I finished third. third. Yeah, it was, it was, oh, it was great. And that's, I've had, yeah, so I've Chowton winners, Hennessy winner, but to get round there, and all I wanted was a picture on my front room wall of me jumping them fences, and, I, and I, it stands proudly now, so I'm very proud of that moment. All right, Matthew, so you mentioned, you said that the Grand National wasn't like, skirted around saying it was a regret, but it was something that you wish you had done in your career. Are there any sort of particular events or what ifs that you sort of look back on and think maybe if this had happened that would have happened i think any jockey could look back and say if this happened if that happened but i, 
I think you look back, I rode winners that I shouldn't have got on because someone got injured and I got to ride it. Lads had got on horses I was injured and they got. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you should have rode a gold cup winner. But my counter argument for that is, why do you think I should have rode a gold cup winner? Yes, I rode Coney Gree when he, he won his bumper. I won three hurdles on him, one at Utoxter, two grade twos at Cheltenham. And yeah, he did, he went on to win a Cheltenham Gold Cup, but I never rode Coney Gree over fences. Me and Bradstock said parted ways by then, so you can't look back and say, oh, I should have had a Gold Cup winner, because I shouldn't have had a Gold Cup winner, because I was no longer working for Mark Bradstock, so I had no right to ride Coney Gree in the Gold Cup. Yes, it's, does it hurt a little bit? No, it doesn't hurt a little bit. That's, that's just the nature of the beast, the nature of racing. It's, but to be, it'd be silly to say, when you're that close to a very good horse like him and he goes to win the Blue Ribbon event, of course you'd have say, oh, if I'd have still had the job, I, that's part and parcel of it. But it, I don't look back and go, oh, I should have had a Gold Cup winner because I shouldn't have done, because I wasn't working for him at that time. And I was one of the first people to ring him up, congratulate him. And listen, Bradstock's, they gave me Carruthers. I mean, the days I had on Carruthers in grade ones and grade twos, the Hennessy, he finished fourth in the Gold Cup. So to, for me to walk into the enclosure in a Gold Cup, I've just got, I was, I just got chinned on the line. I was gonna be third, just got chinned on the line. But to walk into that amphitheater, even though I hadn't won, but to walk into there and finish fourth, in a Cheltenham Gold Cup. That, to me, I, I'll cherish that memory. And you would get people say, oh, you should have rode. No, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have rode a Gold Cup winner because it was, that was, my time with Bradstock was over then. And so I don't look on, back on that. It was, it was nice to come, I, my, when everyone asked, I say, I rode two Cheltenham Gold Cup winners. Not in the Gold Cup, but I was lucky enough to ride Best Mate and Coney Gree, so it's. The, the Bradstocks were interesting people to work for, weren't they? They have some interesting tactics, like sheep leading in horses and stuff like that. Oh yeah, they, yeah, they had their ways, but it, it worked. You, a lot of people would question what they'd done, but listen, they, if you look back over the years, they've won a Cheltenham Gold Cup, they've won a Hennessy, they, they know how to train a good horse. And, and Mark had a very good eye for a good horse, and he had a, a, a couple of nice ones come along, and say, they, I will, thankful for them because they gave me some of if not the best days in my career okay now it's interesting you said they had a good eye you had a good eye for a jockey now i don't even know if you remember this but i found an, an interview or a question and answer session that you did in 2010 where you predicted brian hughes is going to be a future star yeah brian yeah <laughs> i mean anyone could say stevie wonder could have told you that Simon. he was just he just had it you know from he was he was stylish it came very easy for him and he just needed, again, it was just that luck of finding a trainer. He was up north, which is, if you look back over the years, I don't think you'll find many champion jockeys that come, that ride in the north solely and become champion jockey. And Brian joined Donald McCain, and Donald had numerous amounts of horses. He, he probably, at the time, he didn't have your, your champion horses, your anti-winners, but there weren't many days. If you looked at the results, Brian was having two, three winners 
every day up at, up north. And then when he did come down south, he got a couple of good rides. And yeah, listen, he, he's, I'm glad my prediction came right because he, he, he is good. He's still very good and he, he's one of the very best. Okay, now you talked about Jersey. So you've had a sort of autumn of your career, very successful over there because you were champion, was it for three years in a row, 2014, 15 and 16? Yep. Um, and for those of us who don't know much about racing in Jersey, which includes me, apart from what I was Googling recently, can you t tell us a little bit about it? You had um, 2015, for example, you had 44 rides and 17 winners. Yeah. Good strike rate. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I, again, I was, it was, it was lucky. So I was lucky. I, I'd gone over there. It was only because uh, Gordon Schenken was the first trainer I rode for over there. And he had been working for Martin Pipe many years ago. And of course he knew Jamie. So he initially he asked Jamie to go over there and Jamie was quite busy and lucky for me Jamie put my name forward he said if you ask Batch, Batch come over for you and so I started going over to Jersey and Gordon and his wife had a, a few horses in training and I rode him a few winners the first year I was over there and then I started riding for Alison Melzard oh, a, lot, a lot of viewers know Victoria Melzard from over here very successful amateur so I started riding for her mum in who's a, she's one of the top trainers over in Jersey so the winners became, I mean, I don't think there was a stage there. I was, there wasn't many meetings. I wouldn't go home without a winner or a double. I rode a couple, I never rode a treble over here. Rode a few doubles over here, but I rode a few trebles in Jersey. I was, I was just getting on the, I was just getting on good horses. And then Neil Holland took some over, George Baker. I mean, even you could have won on Simon. They were that easy. <laughs> Trust me, they were that easy to win on. They made me look a lot better than I was. Now, like I said, if anyone I've spoken to about you, they've all said, oh, great guy, makes everybody laugh. Like, have you always been like a natural a natural sort of joker, the, the life and soul? I, ever since school, I think, Simon, yeah. I was, there was me and my mate was at school. Dougie! <laughs> very, very well doing on the flat, old Dougie. So yeah, I was at school. There was two of us in the class, and we was like, we were the class clowns, really, and we just kept everyone entertained. And yeah, it sort of continued in the way. And once I'd, I'd found my feet and you, it's confidence, and all of a sudden, and before you know it, in the way room, you're a newbie. Then you're up and not up and up and coming. You're sort of uh, proving yourself, and then you're all before you know it, in a blink of an eye, <laughs> you're one of the senior jockeys. So yeah, I always had that, and I used to take the mick out of people and have a laugh. And I think even I think even Ruby Walsh mentioned me in his book one time, keeping him entertained at Sandown one day. So yeah, it's I was I'd like to think I was when I went out there, I got the job done and I, I took my job very seriously. But I think you have to have that side because there's it's very serious in there. It's a very serious job. It's a very dangerous job, and. I somehow sort of lightened the mood and yeah, I think if you, hopefully, I mean, listen, there'd probably be a few people out there that would have a few bad words to say about me and sort of, but hopefully they'd all say I was a good, funny lad, nice fella to get on with. And yeah, if, if I heard people say that, I'd be pleased. Well, you do. But other things you've been doing, anyone that's seen the film War Horse has seen you careering around in it. Well, they, well <laughs> they, they wouldn't have seen me, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in it along with a few other jockeys that you would have seen, but we done we done a couple of days filming down in Reading, and there was loads of us, so we all went down. And we, we arrived on set, and we were classed as horse experts. So we've gone in, we've had our hair cut, we've been given costumes, 
we've had makeup on. I was like, we must be really close to the camera here. We're like, they've gone all out on us. We like, we're going to be like on film. We're going to be in a Steven Spielberg film. So we, we've arrived on set. It was a massive field in, in Reading. And it was the scene, but people who have seen the film will know the scene where the whole of the German army runs out of the forest and there's this big war scene. So anyway, everyone's shouting action, we're coming out. And it, Anyway, if you watch the film, well, I promise you now, Simon, I could have had an aluminous pink shell suit on, long hair, and you still wouldn't have seen me. I was that, <laughs> I was that far down the shot. But it was good because we, we filmed that and then they filmed a another shot with uh, Cumberbatch and we were standing behind the camera and we were watching it and they they cut about I don't know how many times but he had Steven Spielberg there shouting his orders and then filming this scene and like we was there all day and we were talking to someone and they said like you could do eight nine hours of filming and during that day you'd be very lucky if you got about two minutes of the film it was just the, to see the what goes on at, at the films and the background of it is just, it's unbelievable. But that's something that you enjoy doing though. Oh yeah, it was great, yeah, I've done a few, yeah, I've done a few things. I've done War Horse. You have done a few things, hang on then, let me work my <laughs> way down to them. One thing I do know is you're a merciless host at Cheltenham Previews, as I found out to my cost. I mean, <laughs> is, that the, is that the sort of thing you enjoy doing as well? Yeah, I, I enjoy doing Cheltenham Previews. I've done, done a couple of after dinner speaks as well. I helped a mate up years ago, he got let down by a cricketer, I don't know who he was. Was I would have named a changer. Uh, they let him down and he asked me to go and do an afternoon a speech. And he said, I said, look, what do you want me to talk about? He said, look, all them stories you've told me over the years, he said, that they're, they're funny, like people that work in offices and business people, like they find that interesting. It, that went down well. And funny enough, I'd done one three weeks ago. Mrs. Baldin rung me up and they'd had a big owner's day. She said, look, we, we know you're retired and people have said, like, you're quite funny would you be interested in coming and do an after dinner speech, tell them about your career and stories. And yeah, I think it, I think it went well. I got a lot of good feedback. So I enjoy, I enjoy getting up and, and speaking like that. And you can always tell where it's going to go with your opening line. If you, if you get a laugh, then that eases you into it. And then if you don't get a laugh, you're like the old tumbleweed moment. But hopefully my first line, if that didn't get a laugh off someone, then I'm struggling. One of the, I said that I'd asked a few people about you and all they did was speak highly, but what they do want to know is whatever happened to Rocket Roy and the producer? Rocket Roy, yeah, we've done it for... And tell us about Rocket Roy. Yeah, so it all started really at Sheena's. We were riding out one morning, me and Mark was riding out, and we rode these two horses, and this one horse, the grey horse, Rocket Roy, as we called him then, he was, he was quite a keen going sort, quite keen. But... A certain part of the gallop he used to hack across and he used to he used to switch off. He was very easy. Anyone could have rode him. And I said to Mark, I said, I reckon I could do this bit with no hands. He's like, really? I went, yeah. I said, he's that quiet. I reckon I could just throw the reins at him. And so she said, go on then, go on then. So off we went, took my hands off. So then just mucked around and then sort of started going like this, put my hands behind the back. So then we'd done that and he filmed it, it was quite funny. And then the things with Sheena horses as well, they, they knew their gallops, they were very good. They, they'd go in a straight line and they stayed there. 
So I said, you know what, I think, I don't, I don't recommend this to anyone trying this. <laughs> don't try this at home. So we jumped off up the gallop, when a good gallop, I just took my hands off the rein and started putting my hands behind the back. And then started talking, I don't know why we started, I think it was, we were talking about, do you remember Only Fools and Horses? Yes. When Dell hired the singer, Tony Angelino, yeah, yeah. to sing all the songs, yeah. and the Queen Queen Guas of oh, so that sprung into our mind. So all of a sudden, Rocket Roy became Rocket Roy. Posted a few videos, and then, as they say, the rest is history. It just took off. We was making videos every week. We was making appearances. So it went, yeah, it went well for five years. But then it it, it got difficult, especially. Because at that time, I was fully into racing then, so me and Mark were seeing a lot of each other, and we just could fit it in riding out, and so it all fitted in. But then, obviously, I'm a lot older than Mark, so my career started... I say my career, I don't think my career ever started, but my career started sort of winding down. So, obviously, I had a part-time job, so it was, finding, it was difficult finding time to do the days and get the videos and getting them turned around that quick. So. So we made a decision to say, look, I don't think we can give it 100% anymore. And we didn't want it to sort of people to go, oh, this is getting boring. So hopefully we stopped it. And listen, I'd never say never. You know, it's, I see a lot of people now and they wish they'd still like to see some more come back. I'm going to stop talking because there's a motorbike coming. Come on, George. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if, if, if time sort of, if I got back and got time to do it, it, it may reappear someday. But it was, I didn't want it to sort of get diluted and people go, oh, it's got boring anymore. So we, we consciously sort of just said, right, we've we done our last one on Christmas 2019, I think. And so, yeah, it's, but never say never. And today you're entertaining guests up in the, uh, up in the corporate, in the boxes? Up in the restaurant, yeah. I just, I just talked through the card and I'm surprised they've had me back to be honest because I didn't tip one winning yesterday <laughs> I was here the last meeting there was an evening meeting and the English rugby team was here and thank god I, I tipped them four winners I was like <laughs> the size of them I think they would have chucked me off the balcony but lucky enough I gave them four winners so yeah sometimes I do okay but yesterday was horrendous they mentioned at the beginning that you've had a hip replacement not long ago was that um a legacy of horse riding I I don't know it, it's I know Richard Johnson's had one I think if you look back, I probably, I used to play a lot of football, a lot of squash. Very good a, footballer, I'm told. I'm okay, I'm okay. Got my first game tonight, back from the injury. I'm okay, yeah, I'm like a little Jack Russell, gnash away at people's ankles. And how did you, um, how did you fare during your career for injury? Do you know what, looking back, I count myself very lucky. I've got a few bits of metal in my arm, broken ribs, broken arms, broke my neck. Yeah, I look. If I look at others, just rolls off the tongue, broke my neck. Yeah, I, I, I look at others, and they had probably more worse deals than I did. I, the injuries I did have, I, I, I count myself lucky than that than most. But yeah, the hip, probably a combination of riding. I probably never, if you look back, I don't. You always, most people have one leg longer than the other, and my left leg was probably always slightly longer, so that probably took the brunt of everything. And it always seemed to damage stuff on my left-hand side, whether I was sort of leaning that way anyway. So, yeah, it could have been a combination of that. It was just the cartilage had gone. There. It, was, it, was just, it was just bone on bone, so I had to get it, had to get it done. And I'm very great. I mean, I'm, 
I'm 47 now, and for a 47-year-old to get a hip replacement, no, I'm not knocking the NHS because they've been brilliant to me over the years with all my other operations, but 47-year-old, I'd been wait, I'd still be waiting now for a long time. So, lucky enough for me, the injured jockey fund stepped in and and helped me get the operation early. So, yeah. And is your golfing resumed? Golfing's resumed. Yeah, yeah. I'm back on the golf course. Bit of a hustler on the golf as well, apparently. Yeah, when I yeah when I'm playing well, I can yeah I can I can I'm I'm okay. <laughs> now, one of the um, apart from people that would have seen you on your circuit, you're a familiar face for the is it racing welfare you were advertising when you were um, doing the about new people coming into the into the sport. Yeah, I was up at Aintree and up at Cheltenham. But in the adverts on the on the um, on the telly. Oh yeah, yeah, just trying to get young people in there. Yeah, we filmed that up at Noel Williamson's yard, and they just approached me and. Hopefully, I sort of seemed approachable and and shared my passion for racing, and hopefully, it's done good. Because, as I say, it's I think nothing nothing in life's easy. If you want a good job, if you want a good career, at any stage, you you have to work at that. Whether you you have to work at what you do. I'm not saying racing's easy to get into. It's it's. It's probably up there with one of the hardest jobs with the times that you get up and I mean it, it's it's changed a hell of a lot now for the good I think now we used to work every other weekend I think now you can work one in three it's to me the lad and the lasses that work in the yard they do the hard work as a jockey it's very easy for us you ride out in the morning you turn up you come to the races you go home yes the driving's all there but Listen, the lads and the lasses in the mornings, they, they're the unsung heroes, really. They do, they're there every morning, every day, and seeing how they're looking after the horses and then giving you the information when you get on these horses. Look, if you do this with him or her, it'd be better for you. And their knowledge that they give you is invaluable. So it's, it's one big mechanism that works if you work with the people within it. And it's, it, oh, yeah, I'm obviously I'm biased, but it, it's, it's been great for me because for 20 odd years it's felt like I've just done something I've loved for a job. And is it something that you would recommend your kids to do if they wanted to become either a st stable person or even try and be a jockey? Yeah, I, I've got a daughter now who's 14. I can safely say that she doesn't want to be a jockey. She rides, she's got a pony. She rides well, better than me, but that wouldn't be too hard. But yeah, she just doesn't. Her mum has never had any, not a racing background, so I wouldn't be, I'd probably lie and say if I wasn't disappointed she was going to go down the jockey route because it's a very, very hard sport to make a living out and get into. If she wanted to be a jockey, I'd be 110% behind her, but at 14 now I think that ship has sailed because I think she would have been showing a lot more interest now than she she has done but yeah whatever she do whatever she does or wants to be and i'll be behind her if she wants to be a jockey now i'll do my best to try and support her but i i don't think she'll go down that route it's interesting that you say that your wife's not from a racing background it was it, does it make things a bit easier if you're not 100 percent immersed in racing so when you go home it's not all about racing still is that a help yeah she's only my partner she's not my wife i'm still looking for my wife oh. so i'm not found her yet <laughs> jump into assumptions <laughs> No, yeah, it does, you know, it's, I think it gives you, you come back in, if you've had a, a bad day, if you've given one a bad ride, but that was a prime example, like I was at Cheltenham when Coney Gree 
won the Gold Cup. I normally stay, I work there all week and I normally watch the Gold Cup and go home. And it had rained all morning and it was just falling right for Coney Gree. Everything was falling right for Coney Gree. And I was like, I, I don't want to be here. I think, I think he can win. I think he can win. I, I, I'd rather not be here in that situation because people would see in your face, you, you, you would be visibly upset because it's a Gold Cup at the end of the day. And what I said earlier, that it, it doesn't matter because I was never going to ride him in a Gold Cup anyway. But I thought I'd just take myself out of that equation. I'll go home early, listen to it on the radio. And so driving home, listening to Gold Cup anyway is one. So then people sort of are on eggshells then. So, oh, Batch is going to, what's Batch going to think? But it, do you know what? I drove home that night. I got in. I think my daughter was only like six, maybe then. And she hadn't seen her dad for five days. She ran up to me. She couldn't give a monkey's who had won the Gold Cup. She just ran up shouting, Daddy, Daddy, arms out. And then I thought, you know what? That's what it's all about. That's what my life's all about now. It's, she doesn't care who's won the Gold Cup. All she's pleased is to see her dad and just put things in perspective. So it, it helped in that sense, and same with partner. She, she probably didn't even watch the Gold Cup. She probably didn't even know who won the Gold Cup that day. She only because I came home and she said who won. It, it, but then, yeah, it's it's. I think it's good because you can go from racing, come home, and they're not really. They are interested in what you've done, but it doesn't. They're not really interested in racing. It's not changing their lot. It's they've got she had a job, and so yeah, it was it was good to come back and have sort of like a, a neutral opinion. And finally, Matt, you, you said you already explained you do the sales job and you a bit of the building and stuff like that. And also you're doing this horse racing. It's been your life for since you were 15, so 30 odd years. Is this just a time now where you're weighing up your options or do you think you know which direction you're going to go into for the rest of your career? Is it going to be racing? I think I'd love Obviously, a sales job and I help my mate out, but I, at the end of the day, I've got bills to pay, and like I do get a bit from racing, like the talks. And I, my ideal scenario is if I could make a living out of coming racing, talking to people, telling stories. I mean, who, there's probably people out there that don't hear my stories, but I think I've got a good story to tell. I think I'm a good storyteller, and I think I'd serve the sport quite well. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be that my future. But it, listen, if it's not, if, if people don't think my face is right or I'm not, okay, I'm from Brighton, I, I don't probably speak the best, then that's fair enough. I'll, I'll carry on doing what I'm doing. I'll make a living and I will keep providing for my family. I'll go out there, I've, my dad's been a grafter, I've been brought up to graft, so, that's what I do, Simon, and it, 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 it doesn't bother me. As long as my bills are paid at the end of the month, I'm happy, my family are happy, that means more to me than anything. Brilliant. Well, Matty Bachelor, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you very much.